Well, there aren't too many sermons preached here or in any Bible-centered church in which something's not said about the need to guard our hearts against pride. And that's because pride is related to most sins, if not every sin, in some way. No wonder then that God makes it clear that he hates pride. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And then the first one on the list is haughty eyes. That's a way to express pride in the heart. The New Testament supports the fact that God hates pride, but in contrast, loves humility. And one passage that readily comes to mind is Romans 12, verse 3. It's not actually our text today, but I do want to spend just a moment there in Romans 12, 3. Here the Apostle Paul gives some very needed instruction for every generation. Here's what it says, Romans 12, verse 3. I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Now, the word translated there, to think, means hyper-thinking. So the verse is referring to hyper-thinking about self. And the point of the phrase, ought not to think, indicates that this thinking too highly of self, this hyper-thinking of self, is something that just does not make sense. In contrast, that verse goes on to say, we are to think about self with sound judgment. That's a term that means to be wise or sober. So in this verse, it's referring to making a sober judgment about self. Interesting, that same term is found in Mark chapter 5, where it says in verse 15 there that the former demon-possessed man was now, it says, in his right mind. Same term. So we can put the statement in Romans 12, verse 3 another way. Take a sane view of yourself because self-love or self-conceit is insanity. But to have sound judgment means that we have to recognize something. We must recognize that in ourselves, we are nothing at all, but that in Christ, we can be used to the glory of God. Paul's instruction in that verse is therefore much needed counsel to all Christians today, but it is especially needed among God's servants, pastors, elders, church leaders. We as leaders do not get a pass when it comes to pride and view of self. We are effective only to the extent that we are humble and to the extent that we keep a very realistic or sane view of ourselves. Now, our passage that helps leaders think rightly about themselves is our passage for today. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. 
We were in this chapter last week. We looked at verses 1 to 6 together as a standalone sermon. I decided just to keep that going and look at the next section. Last time, I mentioned to you that Paul, as he wrote this epistle, was under all-out attack in Corinth. False teachers had infiltrated the church there and were seeking to cast doubt on Paul's credibility in the minds of the people in the church. And they did that through a merciless and relentless attack on the Apostle Paul's character and on his ministry. They even resorted, I mentioned to you, they resorted to ridiculing Paul's personal appearance. According to them, Paul lacked good looks, he lacked charm, he lacked oratorical skills. In fact, the reason so many rejected Paul's message, the false apostles claimed, was that he was just too common. Therefore, he was totally unimpressive. Well, those attacks demanded a response from Paul at some level, but not in order just to defend himself. It was for the sake of the gospel that he needed to respond. Paul knew that if the false teachers could discredit him in the minds of the people, then they would be free to go on to deceive the Corinthians with their false teaching, including the false teaching of legalism. So what a difficult spot Paul was in. I mean, he was a man of integrity. He was a man of great spiritual character. And so he did not want to come across as appearing proud. In fact, he personally was acutely aware of all his weaknesses and shortcomings. 1 Corinthians 15.9, he writes, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But he nevertheless needed to set the record straight about his life and his new covenant ministry. So last time, in verses 1 to 6, we identified some distinctive characteristics of a new covenant minister. That's what Paul was. That's what we are today. We preach the grace, the gospel of God's grace, which brings life and not the letter of the law, which brings death. If you look back to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians in verse 6, he says that, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, we are servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, in today's passage, this next section, Paul goes on to say that there is something paradoxical about two particular topics. Here's the first one. Number one, let's note together, number one, the paradoxical nature of of ministry, the paradoxical nature of ministry. Here it is. On one hand, the gospel itself has indescribable value, but on the other hand, gospel ministers are relatively unimportant. Verse 7, Paul writes, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That Greek term treasure refers to something of great value, something that would be placed in a special place perhaps or in a special container just for safekeeping. In 
Here in this verse, it's Paul's way of referring to the gospel. And the gospel, the way it's described, especially in verse 6, the glorious message that we find in verse 6, that is about the glory of God that's found only in the person of Christ. When God removes the veil off someone's heart, which is what verse 3 says, or removes the blindness from someone's mind, as verse 4 discusses, then that person comes to personally know the glory of God as it's revealed in Christ. And that is a treasure. It's a treasure of inestimable value because of who Christ is. Colossians 2, verse 3, for example, it says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 9 of Colossians 2, For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The gospel message, therefore, reveals the most profound truths that the world has ever known, and it has the power to produce the most powerful eternal effects in someone's heart. Just think about it. What we have because we know Christ and because of the gospel, through the gospel, people are freed from the power of sin and death. We're freed from condemnation and God's eternal judgment. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. We are then transformed day by day into the image of Christ and we're given eternal joy and peace and the hope of heaven. All of that in Christ. This is why it is such a privilege to be involved in new covenant ministry. The gospel message is a treasure. Not our treasure. Notice how he says we have. That's in the present tense. It's a way of denoting not personal ownership. It's a way of communicating the idea of guardianship or the fact that we are trustees of the treasure. The treasure has been given to us. We have it now. And we are guardians, trustees of it. What a treasure. However, there is a great paradox here. And that paradox is set up with that little conjunction but at the beginning. This points to a contrast that's what's said in verse 6. There in verse 6, the emphasis is on the glory of the gospel. But, verse 7 says, this wonderful, priceless gospel treasure is contained in simple containers, what verse 7 here calls earthen vessels. That term, earthen vessels, or you may have a translation that says jars of clay, The term refers to a container in Paul's day that was made out of baked clay. Those containers, as you can imagine, were fragile. They were unexceptional. They were disposable. And since they were even mass-produced, the way they would define that in Paul's day, they were both affordable and, as I said, expendable. You see, we're not talking about a container that's like a gold-plated box. No, an earthen vessel is just a common pot, one that was virtually valueless. And earthen vessels were even frequently used in Paul's day for some distasteful purposes, like the storage and or transportation of garbage or even human waste. However, on occasion... 
someone might actually use this common pot to hide something valuable, like gold or silver or jewelry. One interesting example in history of a clay pot storing something valuable were the vessels in which the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Jars, clay pots, stored in there, hidden in a cave. The point is that the pots themselves have no intrinsic value. Their only worth came from the possible values that they contained, the valuables they contained, or the service they performed. So the point here is this is the way ministers of the gospel should view themselves. They're just ordinary people, containers, cracked pots, if you will full of imperfections. And those imperfections certainly stand in stark relief against the glory of the gospel that we proclaim. You see, in presenting servants this way, Paul was expressing solid biblical anthropology. Paul was familiar with what the Old Testament said about man all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. In the creation of the world, Genesis 2 verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. That's who we are. That's where we come from. I read a report several years ago, by the way, it was talking about all the minerals that are found in our body, you know, and magnesium and calcium and all those kind of things, all the different things that are there that if you boiled it all down... This was written several years ago, but if you gave it a value, it all adds up to be about $1.86 of value. But not only is man made from the ground, he's going to return to the ground as well. Genesis 3.19 tells us that. You will return to the ground, it says, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Years later, Solomon emphasized the same point in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20. Solomon writes, all came from the dust and all returned to the dust. So this is true of the Apostle Paul. This is what he was saying about himself and his co-workers. They were made from the earth. They would return to the earth. And in between those two events, they're just clay pots, pots that crack Pots that crumble. Thus, when it came to the disparaging evaluation and assessment of him by the false teachers, Paul didn't necessarily disagree with them at all. He acknowledged his human limitations. He acknowledged his weaknesses, his own intrinsic commonness. But just like a cheap, fragile, ordinary clay pot might have been used to hide valuable treasure, so, Paul says, he and his co-workers carried the priceless treasure of the glorious New Covenant gospel. And behind this incredible paradox, Paul understood there was a profound divine purpose. He gives it to us in verse 7. So that, he says... The surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. You see, there's a problem with gold-plated boxes. I mean, we like those. Gold-plated 
Boxes have their own value, their own shine. The problem is their appearance can distract from the glory of the treasure they contain. So the great thing about clay pots is that their very weakness, their very commonness, focus attention on God's extraordinary power. Notice that Paul describes the power there in verse 7 The power of God is having surpassing greatness. You could say it this way, power that's extraordinary in quality. And it's extraordinary because it is God in Christ who rips the veil of blindness away that lies on every human heart, allowing God's gospel treasure and light to shine in. So by using frail people, by using fallible people to proclaim the gospel, God is making it very clear that the power lies not in the messenger. It's in the divine message itself. That's why Paul made sure his ministry was always Christ-centered and not self-promoting in some way. The paradoxical nature of ministry. Here's the other topic, number two. The paradoxical nature of hardships. The paradoxical nature of hardships. On one hand, ministry and life bring many hardships. But on the other hand, the difficulties and the trials, as bad as they might get and as threatening as they might be, do not defeat God's servant, nor do they impede the ministry. Now, let's see how he makes this point. He presents to us a summary list here of the various hardships that he commonly encountered. And the paradox we will see is that these hardships did not cripple his ministry. First of all, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. That term afflicted is Paul's favorite term in his writings in describing trials. It's a word that means hard-pressed or better probably for us to say it, under pressure. Paul was indeed under constant physical pressure, constant spiritual pressure. In fact, he says these afflictions had been experienced, he says, in every way. That calls attention to the extent of the hardships and the variety of the difficulties that he encountered. But it wasn't a surprise to Paul that he encountered all those things. Not at all. In fact, the risen Jesus had told him at the beginning of his walk with Christ when he got saved had told him that these afflictions would come. Listen to Acts 9, verse 16. The risen Christ is speaking. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's one side, but here's the other side of the paradox. Verse 8, but not crushed. Not crushed. A better translation of that is, but not restricted. Not restricted. That's what the term means. It means to confine something or restrict something, to cramp it, to crowd something. Figuratively, it was used then to describe being emotionally cramped, we might say distressed. And the point is that the apostles' ministry involved a great deal of this, a great deal of pressure, but that pressure had not led to a cramping, a restriction a crushing, a limitation of his ministry at all. Second, the pendulum swings back, verse 8. We are perplexed, perplexed. 
It's a word that has to do with being bewildered, uncertain, baffled, being at a loss, maybe trying to figure out why something is happening in your life, being at a loss, trying to figure out what's the best way to respond. You find another great example of that back in Luke chapter 24, the women who went to the tomb and they found it empty. They didn't find Jesus' body. It says that those women were perplexed. They were baffled. Another example in Paul's own ministry, and he even calls it, he, he talks about his bewilderment, his perplexity over the Galatians abandoning the true gospel so quickly and so easily. Here's what he says in Galatians 4.20. I am perplexed about you. Okay, I'm baffled. Just as a personal side note, I take a lot of encouragement from a lot of verses, but this is one I take a lot of encouragement from. And knowing that the great apostle Paul sometimes didn't know what to do. Because that's my life. Many moments like that. He was perplexed about things momentarily, but these momentary times of confusion had not led to something extreme, what we might call utter bewilderment. Verse 8 continues, he says, but not despairing. Not despairing. That verb connotes a more intense form of perplexity or doubt, even to the point of coming to a point of despair. Now, what's interesting in the Greek text is that there is a play on words going on. It doesn't come across in our English translations. I'll give you the terms. These participles translated perplexed and then despairing, the pair there, they're from the Greek terms. Just listen to them. Opereo, exopereo. You can hear the similar sound. The play on words in English would be something like this. Paul was saying, I'm at a loss, but not a total loss. He might have been at his wit's end in some moments, but he was confident that he would not be defeated and his ministry would not be negatively impacted. Third, verse 9, we are persecuted. That term can mean to pursue something or to to move rapidly toward some sort of objective You find it used that way in Philippians 3.14, this idea of moving forward. Paul says, I press on, same term, I press on toward the goal. In Romans 12.13, we're actually instructed to be hospitable. But here's how it's said, Romans 12.13, contribute to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality or pursuing hospitality. Practicing, pursuing, it's the same term. It's just that in roughly half the times we find this word in the New Testament, it's translated with the meaning persecute, and that's right here. And that's because, if you think about it, persecution does include the idea of pursuing somebody, hunting them even. So Paul was saying that's what his enemies were doing. They were stalking him day in and day out. I mean, They had what I call the stalking app on their phone. That's what we used to track where our kids are, you know. Don't tell them that we have that. The stalking app. That's what they were doing. He tells us elsewhere that that persistent hunt by his enemies resulted in a lot of things. 
beatings, imprisonment, distresses, being stoned with rocks one time, attempts to kill him, all of that, persecution. Yet despite being hounded by the enemy, look what he writes in verse 9, but we are not forsaken. That means deserted. The most striking example of that term is in Mark 15, verse 34. You know, Jesus' sense of desertion when he was hanging on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Paul is saying that he never experienced that. He never experienced being abandoned by God. Even in the face of persecution, God had always been with him never leaving him to face hardships on his own. And the presence and power of God in his life is what enabled him then to triumph over all of his difficulties, including what his enemies were trying to do. Finally, verse 9. Here's another one. We are struck down. Struck down. That's a term from the world of athletics. It's graphic imagery from athletics. In the world of wrestling, it would be the idea of being thrown down. In the world of boxing, it would be the idea of being knocked down. So the point is, at times, Paul says, I I felt this way. I felt like I was in a boxing match and I've been knocked to the ground. I know what that feels like, he says. But, verse 9, not destroyed. If you just want to continue the boxing terms, Paul says, I may have been knocked down, but I was not knocked out. Instead, the Lord continually enabled him to successfully endure whatever adversity came his way. There is one additional meaning that's included in this term destroyed. It also can refer to the ultimate destruction being killed. And in Paul's case, that was true. He was constantly in threat of that, being martyred for his faith. But even in the face of death, he says, the Lord was always faithful to protect me and sustain me, so he was confident that such deliverance would continue and that he would not die before it was time to die in God's sovereign will and plan for his life. paradoxical nature of hardships. Well, in the section, the closing verses here, Paul just summarizes that preceding contrasts in the paradox, all those. In this summary, the apostle confirms that this adversity, even the threat of death, had a divine purpose and usefulness. Let's look at it. He makes these three parallel assertions here and assertions in this summary. Verse 10, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. In other words, that's a summary of the experience he's just outlined, the experience of being crushed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down during the course of his service for the Lord. All that meant simply that Paul was just experiencing something, the dying of Jesus. And the word for dying there is unusual in the New Testament. It's rare. It emphasizes not just the event of death when it happens, but the process of dying that leads up to it. So Paul is describing here the ongoing condition of his life. The ongoing condition in which he suffered abuse. He was continually confronted by the prospect of death. All of that just was following the pattern of the suffering modeled by Jesus. 
Now, he says that more directly in other verses, that he understood the connection there. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5. He says, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Galatians 6, 17, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And he says, always, meaning all times, he was under a constant threat of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says it more directly, I die daily. I'm in this process of dying daily. I'm in this process of living out my life and ministry under the Lord, but I'm facing death all the time. That's a way of life for me, he says. It just goes with the territory. And you know what? He considered all of that suffering and his hardships as a badge of honor. Listen to what he says in Colossians 1.24. Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. When Christ was on earth, he suffered. He faced hardships. He was persecuted by his enemies. He understood all that. He experienced all that. But Christ is not here now. He's in heaven. So Paul says, what a privilege it is to stand in his place and take all that that's ultimately meant for him anyway. He even prayed this way in his prayers about his suffering, Philippians 3.10. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Well, verse 10 continues, and it communicates the purpose of all this then, all the sufferings again. Verse 10, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. The phrase, the life of Jesus, refers to the the life experienced by Jesus when he was raised from the dead, but it also is the life then, the resurrection life that he offers other people. So here, the apostle is making the point that the suffering by him and his co-workers was necessary in some way in God's plan for the advancement of the treasure of the gospel because it was the courageous and faithful and even patient enduring of all that suffering that manifested something. It manifested the power of the living Christ in his life. Verse 11 restates and amplifies that assertion. Verse 11, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. He broadens it now. We who live, not just him and his co-workers, but all the redeemed. We who have life in Christ, we are the ones in whom the life of Christ dwells. Colossians 1.27, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians 3.17, Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. So... Paul says that he, his ministry team, any believer, we are alive due to Christ living on us, in us. But this is juxtaposed with something, he says, the constant threat of death. As Paul and his associates proclaim the good news, proclaiming the truth about Jesus' suffering and his death on the cross to pay the debt of the sin of his people, they ended up suffering because of that. They were continually delivered over, he says. The same term used about Jesus being delivered over to his enemies. Delivered over to all these perilous 
hazards every hour, death every day. All for the sake of Jesus' glory, which he states even more fully now in verse 11. Another, so that. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He substitutes the term flesh for body now and calls it mortal just to call attention to our our creaturely weakness and the fact that we are not immortal. We are transitory. We are short-lived. But it is in the transitory and weak nature of our mortality that paradoxically Jesus powerfully puts his risen life on display. Just take note of the parallelism that's in these two verses, 10 and 11. Look at both of them together. Verse 11, all, verse 10, always. Verse 11, constantly. Verse 10, carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Verse 11, delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Verse 10, so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our body. Verse 11, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Regardless how Paul expressed it, the ultimate point is clear, that the suffering played a key role in manifesting the value of the treasure. And then this last statement just summarizes the fruitful results of all the suffering, all the sacrificial service. Verse 12, so death works in us, but life in you. He's saying, we're dying, but you're living because of that. His ministry, which included suffering, was the very means by which the Corinthians, who were reading this letter, had experienced that life in Jesus. I love how Donald Guthrie, the commentator, puts it. He says, the bottom line is this, ministers toil on a path of death so that those to whom they minister can experience life. Now, obviously, whatever suffering we as your elders have had to face in ministry at times pales in comparison to what Paul and his co-workers faced. I get that. That kind of suffering is going on around the world, though. But even though I may not have faced the same hardships, the principles here are the same. And even though this passage specifically refers to church leaders, the principles apply to all of us who are seeking to serve the Lord in our daily lives. So here's how I want to close with you today, just with these two broad implications that do indeed apply to all of us. Here they are, implication number one. We're broadening it out now. Implication number one. God still sustains his people in hardships. God still sustains his people in hardships. Paul learned it in his own experience, but he also knew the Old Testament scriptures. He learned it there as well, just like we do. In verses like Psalm 37, verse 28, of course, this is in so many Psalms. How do you pick just a couple? But Psalm 37, 28, the Lord does not forsake his godly ones. Psalm 94, verse 14, the Lord will not abandon his people. We're encouraged by those verses. We're also encouraged by what we read in Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, verse 5. He himself has said, I will never desert you 
nor will I ever forsake you. Yes, we will go through many hardships in life, and the more clearly we stand for Christ, the more that's going to invite hardships because of ministry. But it will never be beyond what we can bear. And with the Lord's help, beyond what we can persevere through. And we know that because that is told us clearly in that wonderful promise in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, in the Greek term there is the same for trial. No trial, no testing, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Regardless what temptation or trial you're going through, others have gone through it. And every temptation is a trial, and every trial does bring a temptation. It's common. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, tried, beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also. And then he defines escape. So that you will be able to endure it. And keep something in mind as you go through difficulty and hardship. The way you handle it can be a powerful testimony to others. And that's part of what Paul is saying here. When we respond to the hardships of life and ministry, still trusting the Lord and still finding our joy in Him. And that doesn't mean we're oblivious to the pain and the reality of the suffering. We're not. But we find joy in Him still and we trust Him still. That is powerful evidence to others that you know the Lord and that the power of God is in your life. You see, our times of suffering that He's sustaining us through are not just for ourselves, even though He uses them for us. He uses them to mature us and sanctify us. They're not just for ourselves. They're also for the purpose of demonstrating to others the reality of God's power and that we love Him no matter what. Paul knew this as well. And he stated it in more than one passage that his suffering was for the building up of the church. I read one to you already, Colossians 1.24. Let me read one more. It's my favorite. 2 Timothy 2.10. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 2.10. For this reason... I endure all things for the sake of those who are the chosen. I I suffer, he says. I endure it with joy for the sake of those who are God's elect sheep, the chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. God still sustains his people in hardships. Second implication, finally. God still uses imperfect people. God still uses imperfect people. To represent Him in this world, in ministry, God chooses, and I'm so grateful for this, He chooses people from a particular pool of candidates. It was the pool that I was swimming in. It's the pool of cracked pots. The pool of earthen vessels. Where did the pulpit committee find me? Swimming in that pool of cracked pots. 
And there's a good reason that God chooses people from that pool. Because if he sought servants from the pool of perfect people, there'd be no one in ministry at all because that pool is dry. God must choose his servants from the fallen, weak, imperfect human race. There are no sinless people. And we are so grateful for that. Grateful that God delights in using humble, common people, people who are just weak, fragile jars of clay. So that God gets all the glory. So what's the first prerequisite for spiritual usefulness? Usefulness. It's to be humble. Humility. To see oneself for what one really is. And to acknowledge that all the glory for one's accomplishments belong to God who placed the treasure in us. Listen, we live in a world that is filled with people enamored with their own looks, enamored with their cleverness, enamored with their importance, enamored with their position and their accomplishments, their abilities. And sadly, even in the church, there can be those who, when they don't get the attention they think they deserve, or they don't get the attaboys or the recognition they think they deserve, they become then hurt and resentful, which just ends up being evidence of pride. They have forgotten what they are, just a common clay pot. They have forgotten that they don't deserve to be used or recognized at all. So yes, this ends up being another sermon in which we are reminded of the need to guard our hearts against the sin of pride. It's a reminder that we need to take seriously Paul's instruction in Romans 12.3 to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But let's also listen to Peter's Instruction as well here, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When I find people that are kicking against the trials and hardships of life and just becoming bitter and resentful about things, it lets me know something There's a diagnosis I can make according to that verse. They need grace to deal with what's happened, what's going on. They need God's grace, and God's not giving it to them. Why does God not give grace? God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Let's remember that. In fact, let's make the famous statement by John the Baptist our own motto. I must decrease. But he, what, must increase. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder of who we are, where we came from, where we're headed. Thank you for reminding us that in and of ourselves we have no value, but in Christ we have dignity, we have usefulness, we have hope, we have joy. Thank you for being a saving, merciful, gracious God. Help us to repent of pride and self-love and self-conceit. Help us remember 
what we are, but that you use fallible people like us to glorify yourself and to spread the treasure in the world. Thank you for that. I do pray that you would work in the heart of anyone here who cannot say, I have come to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Lord, bring them to that place of repentance and faith that they might be saved. In our Savior's name, amen.